put out your porch light, draw your curtains tight, and get ready for another night of Kentucky Deceased. Welcome to the penultimate episode of the Kentucky Deceased Hauntings of Frankfurt podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey, and I don't want to spend too much time talking at the beginning of this episode, but I wanted to set the stage for you a little bit. Now, if you're from Frankfurt, then you have heard of the Murder and Mayhem Tour, led by the one and only Russ Hatter, former radio DJ and voice of Frankfurt, as well as the former city historian. He recently retired this year from the Capital City Museum, and we have been so honored to share in the spirit of his legacy by going through our archives and wrestling up an original audio recording of Russ's first ever presentation on murder and mayhem in Frankfurt, Kentucky. If you've had the wonderful joy to be on the tour, then you might recognize that some of the content in this episode is a little bit different because Russ had a lot of time to perfect and work on the storytelling of the tour. It had a lot more showmanship. You were out on the street. You could see things a little bit easier. So while we down here at the museum could not mount the tour in the same way that it had previously been done, we wanted to at least share in its content and spirit. So please enjoy this episode, but also please listen with a few warnings ahead. The content in this episode, as well as the episode tomorrow, is dark, disturbing, and at times incredibly dreadful. If you are under the age of 18, then this audio and the content of this material is not recommended for your consumption. So we do ask that if you are a parent or guardian, you abstain from sharing this with them. Additionally, if hearing disturbing content related to murders and death and dying, as well as horrendous and terrific acts of harm is upsetting to you, we do recommend that you do not listen to these episodes. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy learning a little bit more about the dark, twisted, and incredibly dreadful history of Frankfurt. Crimes of the week, and they pinpoint all the places where all activities have happened. You go across the television dial with your remote, forensics, murder, murder, murder. Even Tom Hanks is going around with a machine gun. Murder. Why is it so fascinating to us? I can't speak for you, but for me... I have always been fascinated with the mentality, the mind of the murderer that would take such chances, that would do what he or she did. In the capacity of assistant curator with historic sites for the city of Frankfurt, in doing research, I kept coming across murders in downtown Frankfurt. Now, there's other murders as well in the Franklin County area, too. 
and others that are not on the little map that I gave you this evening. Did everybody get a, a sheet so that you can follow along with our murders tonight? Because there's a map there as well as a sheet that goes through the 20 episodes that we're going to look at tonight. And it's still very sensitive. Some of the people who are in these stories have relatives that are with us today. Justice was quite different a hundred years ago than it is today. It was more swift. Sometimes trials never took place. People took care of things their way. And in many instances, perhaps it was a fairer situation. But obviously in some, it was not. In the stories we're going to look at today from the pages of the Kentucky Yeoman, the Daily Capital newspaper, the Courier Journal, L.F. Johnson's History of Kentucky that you folks reprinted, which probably got me started on this 30 years ago, along with Kramer's book, Capital on Kentucky, and others that have been written. Jim Clotter, for one, with his books of history, along with Lowell Harrison. They have a new history of Kentucky out now and some very interesting segments on violence in Kentucky from especially 1860s to the 1900s. So we're going to take a look at that tonight. And this is going to become a walking tour in October. It's going to be for adults only because the subject matter quite often is graphic at times. And we're talking about real people here. And we're going to have a reservation list to get on these tours. They'll be given on Thursdays and Fridays. Frankfurt, Franklin County Tourist and Convention Commission is one of our sponsors of this event. We'll be letting you know later on about how all this will take place. It's also interesting to note that historic Frankfurt is also a part of this book that we put together. Ten years ago, we started the walking tour in downtown Frankfurt. Years before that, Charlie Manning had one. Historic Frankfurt, John Gray, somebody had one. And uh, this is the, the book that we've come up with. Our book got to the point where there were more stories than anyone could actually take a walk and be able to enjoy because you get tired. Right now the walking tour is about an hour and a half long and we don't go over all of North Frankfurt in our walking tour, nor do we tell you all the interesting things about our community in North Frankfurt. But with the book, we're able to give you more information. This book is coming out in October as well. Gene Birch has done the photography. Some of the other pictures that you'll see up here were ideas we had for front pages of the book or the cover of the book, which we changed. These little tablets, these are just to give you an idea of some of the photographs of Mr. Birch. And these are just what you'd call a work in progress at the time. The book is not this. It's all different. You'll see for each street a little map that will help you as you go down Wapping Street, 
so you'll be able to correlate where you are as you read about the city of Frankfurt in our book. And if anybody is interested, we have some cards at the end. We'll give you more information about how you can get this book. I believe the last book that deals with Frankfurt specifically is Mr. Sauer's book, his reflections back in 1995. So this is uh, the first installment of another for the year 2002. So commercial out of the way, let's begin our trip back into time and take a look at murder and mayhem. You see your map has numbers on it. If you want to follow along with your map and with your little guide, we'll start out with number one. This will take place, and this is where we'll start our tour, is at the old capital with the death of Mr. Goebel. Now, I have not committed this to memory as yet. I can't uh, go at it like I normally do the regular walking tour. I've got a month and a half to get it ready for October, and we'll be ready by then. So I'm going to share this information with you by reading it to you tonight. And if you have to leave and you can't stay for all 20 episodes, well, you feel free to take off if you have to go. But we'll share them with you now. As again, I said, the sources are the L.F. Johnson's History of Franklin County, Decades of Discord, Capital on Kentucky, Jim Clotter's biography of Goebel, Kentucky Encyclopedia, and others. After a very close race, Republican William S. Taylor was declared governor of Kentucky over Democrat William Goebel and was inaugurated December 12, 1899. Even after the inauguration, the election results were contested. And in the midst of those deliberations, Goebel was shot and wounded as he approached the state capitol on January 30th, 1900. Goebel, accompanied by two friends, was walking toward the state house around 11.15 that Tuesday morning when shots were fired from Secretary of State Caleb Powers' office, first floor, lower left windows of the old capitol annex building. The bullet entered three inches to the right, and a half inch above the nipple, shattering Goebel's rib, sending bone splinters into one lung, piercing the right lung, and then exiting through his back. The streets filled with onlookers. Some were carrying rifles, some pistols. Angry Democrats talked of revenge, and it appeared a mob would soon gather. The state militia formed around the annex, protecting Republicans from a vengeful crowd. The Republican governor, W.S. Taylor, ordered 30 troops to guard his wife and children in the old governor's mansion over on High Street. The Louisville Legion and the 2nd Regiment arrived quickly, bringing several Gatling guns. That night, the people learned Goebel was made governor and Beckham lieutenant governor. Sometime before 9 o'clock that night, Chief Justice James H. Hazelrig of the Court of Appeals swore in Goebel as governor. 
rumors are still heard today that he gave the oath to a dead man. The truth is that witnesses and later testimony of prominent people indicates that Goebel was very much alive. Over 1,000 troops assembled and an equal number of armed Democrats were on hand. The Republican Governor Taylor refused to leave his quarters. So we had two governments and two armies which now existed. The Democrats were in the courthouse, the Republicans were in the Capitol. Goebel lay dying in his room in the Capitol Hotel. Uremic poisoning set in. Blood filled his lungs. Pneumonia developed. And by February 3rd, he became worse. At 5.45 that evening, he requested a drink of water and soon lapsed into unconsciousness. Then he died about 6.44 p.m. His last words, as reported by Democrats, ensured that his memory would live on. Tell my friends to be brave, fearless, and loyal to the great common people. The legend had begun. Irvin S. Cobb, covering his first story for a Louisville newspaper, did not accept the deathbed oratory. According to Cobb, in his book, Exit Laughing, Goebel had craved a favorite dish, and after eating it, he told the doctor before becoming unconscious, you know, Doc, that sure was pretty damn bad oyster. Then he died. Governor William Goebel is buried in the Frankfurt Cemetery. Twenty persons were accused as principals or accessories to the assassination, and 16 of these were indicted. Only five actually went before a jury. The trials were held in Georgetown. Three convictions finally resulted in indictments, and the culprits were sent off to prison. Republican Secretary of State Caleb Powers was the mastermind, Henry Yeltsin was the intermediary, and Jim Howard was the assassin. In 1908, Republican Governor Augustus E. Wilson pardoned Powers and Howard. In 1919, Yeltsin was pardoned by Edwin Porch Morrow, another Republican governor. We're ready for number two. On Sunday night, August 4th, 1895, a fist fight took place between Harry Kelly and a fellow named William Willis. Willis was knocked down and he was kicked repeatedly by Kelly, which resulted in Kelly being tried in police court the next day and he was fined the sum of $5 for the offense. But Kelly was furious over the testimony of a bystander, Richard Souter. These two men would meet again that same night over in Crawl at Porter's Saloon on the corner of Washington and Clinton Street. They quarreled and they started another fight. Souter drew a pistol and shot Kelly up close twice, bullets entering his stomach and his left side. Kelly staggered out the door and fell dead on the sidewalk. The men were so close together that one shot actually set fire to Kelly's shirt. The pistol used was a small vest pocket sized gun 
with a barrel about an inch long. Well, Souter turned himself in immediately and was placed in jail. He was the son of Jesse Souter, who had been a local prison guard for many years. Kelly came from a family quite often involved in violence. His uncle, James Kelly, killed a German blacksmith here in Frankfurt in 1874. More on that story later. His father, Tom Kelly, formerly lived out on Glens Creek. And one night he went to the house of an African-American employed at the Old Crow Distillery, armed with a shotgun, intending to Ku Klux the black man. Demanding admittance, he was refused. So he attempted to break down the door. As the door went down, the black man threw a brick from within, which struck Kelly in the face and knocked him near dead for several hours. When he recovered, he concluded to retire from the Ku Klux business. He left the Glens Creek area and moved into town, Frankfurt. The barkeeper at Porter's Saloon in Crawl was also arrested as an accessory to this killing, but he was later discharged. Souter was convicted on the charge of murder and sent to the penitentiary for life. But through the influence of his brother, Lee Souter of Louisville, Governor John Y. Brown would pardon him. There were many acts of violence in Crawl. The following is another story from this area. It was 1909, September, for murder and mayhem number three, if you're following along. The Frankfurt newspaper headlines read, two killed and three wounded in riot in Crawl. Battle between soldiers and civilians stirs all Frankfurt. Crawl's toll of blood. The Crawl was Frankfurt's tenderloin district, for some an area of corruption and violence. The hour-long gun battle began inside the dance hall in the rear of Hauser's Saloon when Joe Nichols complained to Joe Kincaid about how the soldiers were taking over Crawl. Soldiers from the 2nd Kentucky Infantry were quartered at Camp J. Franklin Bell over in Bell Point, right across the Kentucky River near Lock 4. Nichols said, the next soldier that comes in here looking for trouble is certainly going to get it. At precisely that moment, soldier Luther Hines of Somerset walked in, and Nichols started to harass him. Another Somerset soldier, 20-year-old Sergeant Ingram Tate, entered, attempting to break up the fight. Nichols pulled a gun and quickly fired off three shots. Tate fired off two shots, both missing Nichols. Immediately after the shooting, Nichols ran from the dance hall up some stairs and hid under a bed in a second-floor room. After Nichols shot Tate, in an effort to separate the men and to prevent any further trouble, Kincaid pushed the soldier out the door onto the street. Other soldiers picked up Tate's body from the pavement and carried him across the street to another saloon where he died. After the shooting, someone yelled, put out the lights and we'll kill all of them in here. More than 50 soldiers swarmed around Hauser's saloon and began firing their Springfield rifles into the building. Some of the bullets went clear through the building tearing through two outer walls. Over 50 bullet holes were found in the building. 
the dead body of Jeff Cook was discovered after the soldiers fired into the building. Also wounded in the melee were three other local people, William Nichols, Alex McNally, and Ed Miller. The soldiers were talking of burning down Hauser's saloon to get the man who killed Sergeant Tate when Judge James Paulsgrove intervened and firmly took control of the situation. Without fixing the blame for the killing of Jeff Cook, except to find that a bullet fired from a Springfield rifle killed him, the coroner's jury returned a noncommittal verdict after hearing witnesses. Judge Paulsgrove dismissed Joe Nichols, charged with killing Sergeant Tate. Two soldiers who were in the room at the time said they could not tell which one fired the first shot. And the barkeeper swore that Tate backed Nichols up against the wall and threatened to kill him before Nichols fired. It was also shown that Tate had chased Nichols the night before across the street with brass knuckles. At the conclusion of the inquest, Judge Paulsgrove said, the testimony shows that two people were killed and two wounded in this shooting. And yet there's no proof that the defendant, Nichols, shot any of them except Tate. And there's no direct testimony that he fired the first shot at Tate. All the others who were concerned in the shooting were free. And I will not hold this boy on the kind of testimony that has been produced. He is dismissed. This battle brought on a crusade against allowing saloons in crawl. The ultimate outcome of which was the discontinuing of saloons in that section of the city. They just moved them around to other streets in Frankfurt. Looking at number four, this is the one I talked to you about if you were a part of that group. Was anybody in the group 30 years ago when I did the talk on Solomon P. Sharp over at Church of the Ascension? I played the role of Jeroboam Beecham that night, first person killing. Solomon P. Sharp, the P stands for Porcius, was born in Virginia, 1787. He moved to Kentucky about 1800. He read law briefly, was admitted to the bar, set up practice down in Russellville in 1806. He was elected to the state legislature from Warren County, twice elected to Congress, where he served from March 1813 to March 1817. And then he returned to the Kentucky legislature. He was a veteran of World War, actually the War of 1812. He married Eliza T. Scott of Frankfurt. Their marriage produced three children. Governor John Adair appointed Sharp Attorney General in 1820. That's back in the days when governors appointed and we didn't elect. He moved his family to Frankfurt from Bowling Green and resigned this post to go on and win a Franklin County legislative seat for the new court party in August of 1825. Well, on November 7th, 1825, Colonel Sharp was murdered at his home on Madison Street. Madison Street no longer exists where this murder took place. It was there where the John C. Watts Federal Building today is located on that land. You can see the old alley there by Mitchell's Clothing Store, that's Madison Street, and it continued on, and there were some wonderful old buildings that many of you as a part of historic Frankfurt tried to save. 
And I suspect that's the reason I was talking about this murder back then in the early 1970s. At approximately 2 a.m., Sharp was awakened by a knock on the door. When he answered the door, he was stabbed in the chest, severing his aorta and killing him almost instantly. The killer fled. Initially, political enemies were suspected, but Sharp's two major rivals had alibis for the time in question. During the 1824 election contest, a smear campaign was conducted against Sharp featuring handbills accusing him of seducing Ann Cook of Bowling Green and fathering an illegitimate child born to her in 1820. Suspicion in the case turned to Ann's husband, Jeroboam O. Beecham, a young Simpson County law student who had married Ann Cook in 1824 and who had been infuriated by the accusations in the handbills. It was learned that Beecham had arrived in Frankfurt the evening of November 5th and had taken a room at the home of Joel Scott on the corner of High and Miro Streets across from the then penitentiary. It's where all the work is being done down there with the Department of Transportation building. Big parking lot there now. Well, Beecham was arrested in Bowling Green and brought to trial in Frankfurt, charged with Sharp's murder. He was found guilty, sentenced to death by hanging, his wife, Anne, did not want to be separated from her husband, and the jailer permitted her to remain in Beecham's cell in the dungeon of the jail, which was located on the corner of Clinton and Lewis Streets, where the St. John AME Church today stands. On July 5th, the couple attempted double suicide with an overdose of laudanum, but that attempt failed. And then a guard was placed in the cell to watch them. On July the 7th, the morning of her husband's execution, Anne asked the guard for privacy while she dressed. When he left, the couple again attempted suicide with a knife that Anne had smuggled into the cell. Anne was taken to the jailer's home on Lewis Street, and doctors were summoned in an effort to save her life. Beecham was taken to the gallows to be hanged before he could die of his wounds. When he proved too weak to stand, two men supported him as the rope was placed around his neck. To the strains of Bonaparte's retreat, as he had requested, Beecham was executed. Anne died at approximately the same time. The two were buried together, arm in arm, in the same coffin in the Maple Grove Cemetery of Bloomfield, Kentucky. The tombstone was engraved with an eight stanza poem written by Anne. The tragedy at that time was so notorious that Edgar Allan Poe wrote a piece based on this murder. If you have the complete collection, and I'm sure Richard Taylor does at his bookstore, you've got it. It's called Pollition. It's a verse form play and Poe used the idea of the double suicide concept in his writing. Robert Penn Warren wrote an historical novel, World Enough and Time, that details the crime. But the best and most accurate writing is found in J. Winston Coleman, Jr.'s The Beecham Sharp Tragedy. Ready for number five. On Sunday afternoon, 
February 8th, 1835, a prominent attorney, Samuel Q. Richardson, walked over to the mansion house. That's where the McClure building now stands. At that time, the mansion house was the leading hotel in the city of Frankfurt. He started up the steps, which led from St. Clair Street to the second floor. When he nearly got to the top of the steps, he met John U. Waring. After a few words passed between the men, Waring drew a small pistol from his pocket and aimed it at the unarmed Richardson. Several men were present at the time and prevented Waring from shooting. Richardson went to the room of Judge Robbins, who was rooming on the second floor of the hotel, and after staying there for only a few minutes, he left Judge Robbins' room and started down the steps where he had met Waring only a few moments before. In the meantime, Waring went to his room, exchanged his small pistol for a much larger one, and returned to the steps where he again met Richardson, and he renewed the trouble. Waring ordered Richardson from the building. Richardson said, what, what? And he told Waring, put up your weapon. Waring instead fired two shots into Richardson's breast, and he died the next day. The legislature was in session at that time, and the killing of such a prominent man created the wildest excitement. Franklin County Sheriff J.C. Clark took Waring into custody on February 9th. Waring was prosecuted by John Mason Brown and defended by John J. Crittenden and Thomas F. Marshall. Waring was held in the jail room just above the dungeon where Jeroboam Beecham had been held for killing Solomon P. Sharp. Waring was tried three times, and each trial resulted in a hung jury. The fourth trial resulted in acquittal. Waring's brother, Francis G. Waring, was killed in a duel in 1819, and one of his sisters married Silas M. Noel, a noted pioneer Baptist preacher, helped start Georgetown College, preached, I believe, the first sermon at the First Baptist Church on St. Clair. Waring was separated from his wife, who just happened to be the niece of Samuel Q. Richardson. The family trouble was the real beginning of the problems between Waring and Richardson. Richardson had defended Beecham for killing Sharp and severely criticized Waring's conduct in reference to the killing. After the Sharp-Beecham trial was over, Waring threatened to kill Richardson. Waring first appeared on the criminal records of Franklin County in 1818. At every term of court after that, for a quarter of a century, he appeared as a defendant. Waring met a violent end March the 7th, 1845, when he was shot to death in Versailles. The bullet passed through his head, down his throat, and lodged in his lungs. When his body was examined, they found that he wore a strong coat of mail made of steel. No special effort was ever made to locate the assassin, as it was generally considered that the country was well rid of such a bad character. Murder number six. Now, some of these names are going to appear later on because they're involved in other murders. Between 1866 and 1876, 10 years 
Franklin County experienced nearly a dozen major incidents of lynching, mob action, and assassination. Most had strong racial overtones, with African Americans charged with some crime, frequently becoming the victims of lynch law. Often such extra-legal punishments came with the tacit consent, if not direct involvement, of the established community leadership. An election riot took place in Frankfurt on Monday night, November 1st, 1897. Some of the Democratic politicians and workers undertook to collect a boatload of African Americans and carry them up the river, and in that way prevent them from voting the next day in the city election. The Republicans found out what was being done, and they very promptly stopped further proceedings along that line. So the Democrats then undertook to corral the blacks at Daly's Barn, which was located on the Georgetown Road about a mile from Frankfort. The Republicans, white and black, led by Frank Egbert and Howard Glore, all of them well armed, started out to release them. When they reached a point on the road near Kentucky State University, they met one of the wagons which had been used in carrying the blacks to the barn. A man named John Smith, who was called Sweet Thing, was driving, accompanied by several white men. The Republicans tried to stop the wagon, and then the shooting commenced. Howard Glore was killed. John Smith was shot through the knee, and he lost a leg as a result of it. And Charles Graham was shot through the breast and was seriously, but not fatally, wounded. The Democrats came on to Frankfurt and had a warrant issued against Frank Egbert and placed it in the hands of Tess Deacons, a fearless deputy sheriff of the county. Later in the night, when Deacons attempted to serve the warrant on Egbert at the corner of Maine and St. Clair, Egbert and his friends started firing at Deacons, and the Democrats, who were located on the four corners of the street, commenced shooting at Egbert. As a result, Deacons was shot twice and instantly killed and Egbert was shot five times, immediately dying from his wounds. Walter Goins, an uncle of Egbert, was shot in the foot. Several men were arrested and lodged in jail, but none of them were ever tried. Deacons left a wife and three small children. Egbert left a wife and three small children. Glore was not married. No other reference relates to Sweet Things situation. Number seven, you still with us? You all are a test. This is the first time we've done this. First time we've shared it with the public. We'll see how we go. County court day in Kentucky had always been a special occasion for townspeople and country folk alike. The justices of the peace assembled in the courthouse to transact the people's business. People for miles around took the day off and poured into town to witness and participate in the sales and the gatherings. On Franklin County Court Day, November 2nd, 1891, about 11.45 in the morning, at the corner of Maine and St. Clair, it became a scene of a bloody street fight. Five short sharp and in quick succession pistol shots rang out, resulting in one man killed and three bystanders wounded. On the crowded corner, 
Ambrose Palsgrove, a former deputy sheriff from Bald Knob, opened fire on his unarmed brother-in-law, Jerry Williamson, who was walking down the street with his 11-year-old son. The throng was panic-stricken and made a confused rush for shelter. There had been a family feud between the two men for some time over Williamson's abusive treatment of his wife, which happened to be Paulsgrove's sister. The feud culminated when Paulsgrove, seeing Williamson approaching, shouted, don't look at me or don't come near me. Several witnesses had different comments. Then they started firing, or he started firing. Three bullets struck Williamson, one in the right side, and when he hit him in the right side, he turned like this, and the other two shots hit him in the back because they were rapid succession fire shots. One of the bullets went through his body and came out of his chest, striking W.B. Larkin in the back. Another bullet passed through the fleshy part of the left elbow of Joe Williams and also bruised the skin of his right arm, but did not have sufficient force to penetrate. Another bullet hit Alex Snelling in his side. Williamson was taken to the store of Hudson, Humphreys, and Castle on the southeast corner of Maine and St. Clair. Doctors James Williams and Erskine Hume did all in their power to alleviate the suffering of the wounded man, but his condition was hopeless. Around one o'clock that afternoon, he was removed to Mrs. Herod's boarding house, which was right across the street and he died there the next morning around 10.30. The most pathetic sight was Williamson's little son. With tears streaming down his face, he refused to leave his father's side and stayed until the end. Larkin and Snelling received prompt medical attention and were sent home. Williams's injuries were slight, and he was soon walking around again with his arm in a sling. Paulsgrove was arrested immediately after the shooting by Marshal H. P. Williams, Jr., who had been standing nearby and was taken totally by surprise by the shots. The marshal took Paulsgrove to the county judge's office, and after he posted a $10,000 bail, Paulsgrove was released. After the death of Williamson, he was rearrested and placed in charge of the sheriff. Later, Paulsgrove was acquitted in a change of venue court over in Henry County. Murder and mayhem number eight. This happened on the steps of the Franklin County Courthouse. There were several murders at the courthouse. We've only chosen just this one. Silas N. Hodges, a prominent Franklin County attorney, was charged with the killing of a man named Perry. The killing took place on the courthouse steps. At the trial, the proof was conclusive that Hodges acted in self-defense and the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. L.F. Johnson, in his History of the Franklin County Bar, says that Hodges was a man of considerable native ability who accomplished very little because of the fact that he had no ambition. He was jovial, good-natured, easygoing, and endowed with more than ordinary ability. One man's opinion.
Thank you so much for joining us this episode. As always, we are incredibly and eternally grateful for the Capitol City Museum staff and board for helping this podcast happen. And we would be remiss to not mention the wonderful, excellent, and terrific Russell Hatter. Thank you so much to Russ for his years of hard work and dedication here at the Capitol City Museum.